Now, brothers and sisters, let's take out God's Word together. And go to 1 Corinthians 10 with me, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'd encourage you to take out a copy of Scripture. If you don't have one, you can use one of the blue Bibles on the pew in front of you. We're going to be referring back to that text over and over again today. Uh, and our main text will not be on the screens behind me. Uh, so I'd encourage you to look at it with me in your copy of Scripture so that you can most benefit from God's Word to us today. The topic of our text today is, Why Read the Old Testament? Now, many of us can agree the Old Testament can be a slog for many Christians, can it not? I mean, let's just be honest with each other. It can be tough to read the Old Testament or to motivate ourselves to read through the Old Testament. It can be tough to get through it if we are trying to read through the Old Testament. I mean, Genesis and Exodus are great. We've got all those stories from our Sunday school lessons growing up, all those stories that many of us know. It's a narrative. It flows. But Leviticus and Numbers are where Bible reading plans go to die. When I first started to try to read the Old Testament, I remember it vividly. I was in college. I was trying to read through, it was probably Leviticus or Numbers, one of those books. And I remember very well slamming the book down on my desk and walking down the hall to a man that I knew that, that knew more about the Bible than me. I knocked on his door and when he opened it, I was like, what am I supposed to get out of this? How am I supposed to do this, really? Is this possible? I was so frustrated, and I genuinely wanted to read it. I wanted to get something out of it, but it was tough. we got to be honest. The Old Testament is sometimes tough to read. And when we are no longer under the Old Covenant, we're no longer under the law, it makes us ask, why do we need the Old Testament at all? Many Christians are asking this question. Why do we need the Old Testament at all if we're no longer under those laws and that Old Covenant? Well, this morning I want you to see there are many, many reasons why we should be reading our Old Testaments. Many reasons. Our text is going to cover three of them. Right? There's more than three. There's tons of reasons to read our Old Testament. Our text will cover three, so we'll let our text drive our sermon today, because that's preaching God's Word, right? The text should drive us. But there are many reasons to read the Old Testament. For example, we read the Old Testament to know the heart and the character of God, right? That's not one of the reasons in our text, but that's one of the reasons we should read it. It's one of the most important reasons. This Bible that we have right here is, first and foremost, God's self-revelation to us and His instructions to us about how to respond to that. God's telling us, here's who I am, here's how you should respond to who I am. That's first and foremost what your Bible is. Right? So we, we read the Bible and we read the Old Testament to know the heart and character of God. You won't have a well-rounded view of God if all you ever read is the New Testament. We read our Old Testaments to properly understand the New Testament. The New Testament authors are constantly referring back to the Old Testament. You will be confused in many parts of the New Testament if you don't know anything about your Old Testaments. For example, the entire book of Hebrews makes almost no sense at all if you don't understand what life was like in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. So we, we read it to properly understand our New Testaments. We read the Old Testament to get a sense of our heritage and to root us in a long history of believers. Right? Seeking the Lord did not start when Jesus came to the earth. There are people who have been seeking the Lord long before that, thousands and thousands and thousands of years back. God's self-revelation did not begin when He revealed Himself in Christ. It began a long time before that. And so we want to get a sense of our heritage. 
our history, and we want to get spiritual strength and nourishment. Think about the book of Psalms and all the strength and spiritual nourishment that we would not get if we never read our Old Testaments. But those are not the reasons that we find in our text, actually. We'll cover three other reasons from our text today. And so let's look at our text. God's Word from 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. I'll read down to verse 12. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I want you to see three reasons from our text today why we should be reading our Old Testaments. Three reasons. Number one, it was written for us. Number two, it will protect you from overconfidence. And number three, it all points to Jesus. Let's look at those three in turn from our text. First, it was written for us. The Old Testament was written for us. Look at verse 6 in our text one more time. Notice how in verse 6, Paul says, these things took place. And the things he's referring back to, those that he's just mentioned, are things that happened in the Old Testament. And he says in verse 6, these things took place as examples for us. Now verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament is a gift to you from God. And He intended it to be for you. When those things happened, God was working in them so that thousands of years later, Christians in the New Covenant would read about them and would be helped in their walk with Christ. The Old Testament was written for us. And as we look at our text, we see that the Old Testament, those books of Genesis through Malachi, they help us to see the foolishness and the deceitfulness of sin. The Old Testament helps us to see the foolishness and deceitfulness of sin. In verses 7 through 10 in our text, Paul gives four warnings, back to back to back to back. Four warnings in much the same language. He's kind of structuring it the same. Look at these four warnings. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the Israelites. Specifically, in verse 7, he's talking about the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai worshiping a golden calf. That's what verse 7 is talking about. We see that in Exodus chapters 32 and 33. 
Verse 8, he's talking about the sexual immorality in the book of Numbers that the men of Israel were committing with the women of surrounding nations, specifically the nation of Moab. And because of their sexual immorality, a plague from God comes on them. 23,000 die, and it was only stopped, if you remember, by Phinehas, who put to death his own brother, Israelite, and the woman that he was with because of their immorality, because Phinehas was showing the zeal of the Lord. And God stopped it for Phineas's actions. Verse 9, putting Christ to the test and being destroyed by serpents. It's talking once again about the book of Numbers and how the people grumbled and complained against God. God sent poisonous snakes upon them. And they were biting the people. People were dying. And then God had Moses erect a bronze serpent and held it up high on top of a place where everyone could see. And if anyone looked at that bronze serpent, then they would be healed of the poison. They would not die. A foreshadowing of Christ there. More on that here in just a moment. And finally, verse 10, grumbling and complaining and being destroyed by the destroyer, capital D, destroyer. As we watch the Israelites rebel against God in the Old Testament, we witness the futility of disobedience. We witness the futility of disobedience as we read our Old Testaments. We witness the consequences of disobeying God's commands. You see, God is graciously teaching us through our Old Testaments. He's graciously teaching us that while sin is attractive, it will ultimately lead to pain and suffering. Sin is attractive. We have to be honest about that. The pleasures of sin are attractive at times. But He is teaching us specifically through the Israelites in our Old Testament that while sin is attractive, it will ultimately lead to pain and suffering. Notice how in verse 6... Verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Or so that. The reason those things took place as examples for us was because God wanted us to look back on them and not desire evil as they did. It's desire that he's concerned with. God knows our weakness, He knows our desires. He knows that sin attracts us like the blue light of the bug zapper. It attracts flying insects in the summer. That blue light of sin looks so nice. We see the blue light. We're fascinated by it. We forget about everything else. All we can see is the blue light. I want to touch it. I want to go to that blue light. If I can just touch it, everything would be good. It would be so satisfying if I can touch that blue light. What happens when the bugs touch the blue light? They fall. The blue light of sin looks so nice, but we must understand it will kill us. In Proverbs, we read about the man who listens to the seductive woman trying to get him to come to her house and commit adultery with her. The picture is given of a man walking down a road and this woman who is married, her husband's away. She's enticing him Come into my house with me. Come experience the pleasures of sin with me. And in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 22, it says this, All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. It's a trap that ends in death. 
the blue light of sin. God knows. It attracts us. He knows our weakness. He knows our frame. He gives us the Old Testament as examples, as warnings, so that we would not desire sin as those Israelites did. We would not experience the futility of disobedience and the consequences of disobedience as they did. When I knocked on the door of that older student at the University of Kentucky, and I was so frustrated reading my Old Testament, he told me one thing that's always stuck with me. This is not the ultimate only secret to reading your Old Testament, but it can help, and it's always helped me. As you read through your Old Testament, think like this. I am Israel. I am Israel. Israel is me. What do I mean by that? Well, we read our Old Testaments and we see the Israelites being stubborn and rebellious and stiff-necked against God. And sometimes we think, how could they do that over and over and over again? And then we stop and we wake up and we realize, I do the same. That's me before the Lord. God has to deal with me just like he had to deal with them. When we see them constantly getting into trouble and needing God to bail them out of what they have gotten themselves into, out of the hole that they have dug for themselves. And we look at that and we can be like, how could they do it again? And we wake up and we say, oh yeah, it's me. I do that. I am in constant need of God to save me from myself. When we see them forgetting, so easily forgetting all of the wonderful things that God has done for them, so easily forgetting all the miracles that God has done in their midst, and now they're just complaining and grumbling, and they're not grateful. How could they do that? And I think, oh yeah, that's me. I'm like that. I so often forget, which is one of the reasons we need to read. I'm in constant need of God's forgiveness, just as the Israelites were. And so as you read, think, I am Israel. It will help you as you read your Old Testaments. It will help you to find the relevancy of it, even though it is thousands and thousands and thousands of years removed from where we are at today. And so the Old Testament was written for us. Do not neglect a gracious gift from God that He has given to you to help you walk this road with Him and with Christ. He's given it to you. Don't neglect it. The Old Testament was written for us. But number two, the second reason we should read it from our text... It will protect you from overconfidence. The Old Testament, reading the Old Testament, will protect you from overconfidence in your faith. Now follow the argument here. Let's start at verse 1. Verses 1 through 5 make one specific point. Paul is kind of making one point in verses 1 through 5. Notice how over and over again he says all. All. In verse 1, all our forefathers. They were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses and in the cloud. And that's not talking about actual baptism like we know it. It's a figure of speech for going through the water of the Red Sea. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink. But verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They all experienced those things, all of them. Nevertheless, with most of them, Even though they all experienced that, with most of them, God was not pleased. What's the lesson for us? Do not think that just because you are around the things of God, that you are pleasing God. Do not think that just because you are around the things of God, that you are around the people of God, that you are automatically pleasing God. 
Because, brothers and sisters, on the judgment day, there will be a large group of people, and all will have heard sermons. All will have gone to church regularly. But not all will be saved. You might come to church every Sunday. You might listen to sermons. You might come from a family where everyone has considered themselves a Christian for generations. You might have even been baptized in this water back here. None of that guarantees your salvation. There will be people who fit all those categories who on Judgment Day do not make it into heaven. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking about what it's going to be like on Judgment Day. In Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's Jesus saying right there? He's saying lip service is not enough. You might speak well of Christians. You might speak well of Christ. You might speak well of God and church in public. That does not make you a Christian, brothers and sisters. And as I say, brothers and sisters, I I realize, and you've got to understand this, when I say brothers and sisters, I mean those who are my brothers and sisters because the Bible does not allow me to say that of everyone in the world. I can only say that of those who are genuinely in Christ. Just because we give lip service to God does not mean we are Christians. Jesus goes on, though. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it's not just about lip service. There will also be people who come up to Jesus and say, we did good deeds for you. We did good things in your name. We did things for others in your name. We we did stuff. And Jesus says, it's not even about that. Do you know him? What's going on in your heart? Because you can do all of the outward things and still miss Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 is the scariest passage in all of the Bible to me. And here's why. Imagine what it's going to be like for someone on Judgment Day who is looking forward to going to heaven and is looking forward to Jesus saying to them, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. They completely expect to hear that. They're looking forward to it. And when they get up to Jesus, Jesus says to them, that's not where you're going. You're going to hell. I never knew you. Think about the horror of fully expecting to go to heaven. And then in a moment, your eternity changes and there is no second chance. It's hell. That's the scariest passage in the whole Bible to me. And brothers and sisters, I do not want that to happen to you. I do not want anyone to sit in here week in and week out and to mistakenly think that they are saved when they are not. I don't want anyone to come in here and be comfortable every week, all the while they're coasting to hell. 
I don't want that to happen to any of us because it sounds horrific. And so look at verse 12. In verse 12 in our text, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's a word for every single one of us in here. No matter how long you've been a Christian. No matter how confident you are. Now hear me on this. The Bible is clear. We should be able to have assurance of our salvation. There are biblical ways, especially when you read the book of 1 John, we should be able to have a genuine assurance of our salvation and to know that when Christ comes back, we can be confident we're going to heaven. So this is not me up here trying to get every true Christian to doubt their salvation. But what it does mean is that you need to regularly take a look at yourself spiritually. You need to regularly take stock of yourself and to say, am I bearing the fruit of someone who is walking with Christ? And don't leave it up to your feelings. Don't leave it up to your own opinion. We're really good at justifying ourselves. We need to take a look at ourselves. We need to take heed. Because everyone who thinks that they stand... Some of them are standing and some of them are not. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that it is not enough to sit in the pews. It is not enough to pray before your dinner. It is not enough to call yourself a Christian. Satan, brothers and sisters, Satan believes all the right things about the facts of the gospel. Satan believes that Jesus died. Satan believes that he died on a cross for sins. Satan believes that Jesus rose from the grave three days later. It is not enough to believe that stuff. Satan's not going to heaven. Satan's not saved. He uses that knowledge to hate people. What's the difference? How are you any different than a demon when it comes to what you believe? It's all about trust. Are you fully trusting in Jesus? Do you value Him? Do you treasure Him above every other thing? Do you love Him in your heart with everything you have? Have you repented and turned from your sin? Or is this just like a casual way of life for you? Is this just like a box that you checked? What religion are you? Is this just what the family does? Brothers and sisters, that's not enough. Take heed, take stock, take spiritual stock of your life. Because I desperately don't want someone to be sitting in here thinking they are saved and to have that experience when you face Jesus at Judgment Day. And so, the Old Testament was written for us. It keeps us from being overconfident. But third and finally, the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Look at verse 4 in your text. In verse 4, he's talking about how they all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Now remember, in the book of Numbers, there was a point in time where they drank physical water from a physical rock. Remember? They, They needed water. They were complaining, grumbling, and God gave them water out of a rock. Water just came forth out of the rock. Coincidentally, this was also the time when Moses lost his place in the promised land because God told Moses to speak to the rock for the water. Instead, he hit it, he struck it with his staff, and God said, because of that act of disobedience, Moses, you will not go into the promised land with everyone else. But they they drank physical water from a physical rock. But this is talking about spiritual drink from a spiritual rock. But then it says, verse 4, the rock was Christ. In the book of Numbers, all the way back, 
The rock was Christ. This is way before Mary and Joseph. The rock was Christ. Jesus was there. Jesus is all over your Old Testaments. Jesus has always existed. Jesus did not come into existence when Mary conceived. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus has always been there. It's just with Mary and Joseph. That's when he became a man, a human being. That's when he incarnated. But Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has always been here. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 in our text, it says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Again, that's back to the book of Numbers. They put Christ to the test, Paul says. Not just God, Christ. They put Jesus to the test when they were doing that. The entire Old Testament, indeed the entire Bible, is about Jesus. From the beginning of the Old Testament to the end, it ports forward to Him. In the Gospels, we see the life of Christ. And the rest of the New Testament is pointing back to Him. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus in so many ways. Foreshadowing Christ. Prophecies of Christ. Typology, which I'll get to here in just a second. It shows Jesus in so many different ways. In fact, as we read the Old Testament, one of the most important ways it shows Jesus is it shows us our need for Jesus. Because from Genesis 3 onward, when Adam and Eve sinned and got kicked out of the garden, the question has always been, how can we be right with God again? How can we get back to being right with God? How can we get back to dwelling in the presence of this holy God? And the Old Testament is all about the Israelites trying to take care of their sin and God giving them a way to put their faith in Him. But we understand through the Old Testament that it was never fully taken care of. Sin was never really dealt with until Christ Old Testament shows us our need for the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate mediator, the ultimate man to stand in between us and God. Jesus is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. Jesus actually taught himself that the Old Testament scriptures were about him. Jesus actually taught this when he was here. For instance, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says to them, you search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. When he says the scriptures, they didn't have the New Testament back then. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, he means you search the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, he says. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says the Old Testament bears witness about me. Jesus told the Pharisees that. And he held them accountable for not seeing that the Old Testament was all talking about him. And he says, now I'm here and you don't even recognize me. You're supposed to be the experts in studying the Old Testament scriptures and they're all about me. And you don't see that I'm right here. Or he goes on. Remember Luke chapter 24. After Jesus came back from the dead, he meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. And he just walks casually right up next to him and says, hey, how you doing? And they don't recognize him. They have no idea who it is. And he says, what, what are you talking about? What's been going on? What's everybody talking about around here? And they say, have you, have you been inside all this time? Like, you don't know what's happened? There, this man's been crucified. It's been all anyone's talking about. And then in Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, 
interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, all the scriptures, that means the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. He started with Moses, the five books of Moses, and all the prophets. The whole Testament, all the scriptures, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself. The Old Testament is about Jesus. A few years ago, while we were on vacation, I was using my beach time to listen to a seminary course that was free. I was like, hey, it's, it, it doesn't cost anything. I'm going to learn a little bit as I just lay here and do nothing. Uh, it was a seminary course all about preaching, preaching in a postmodern culture uh, particularly. And one of the professors, it was kind of a tag team deal, one of the professors, his name's Tim Keller. And you might have even read some of Tim Keller's books. He's a pretty well-known author these days. But he taught a, uh, a session on preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And in that session, he takes a little bit of time to show how Jesus is the fulfillment, the true and proper fulfillment of so many Old Testament things. So many Old Testament people and uh, places and, and things and events. And the way he puts it is, Jesus is the true and better blank. Fill in the blank. Jesus is the true and better. Here's how he did it. Here's how, how he went through it. And I want to go through it with you because I think it's, it's so helpful. He said, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He withstood his temptation in the garden. Or you could say he withstood the temptation of the serpent. And just as Adam's disobedience was passed down to us, so Jesus' obedience was credited to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel. His innocent blood was shed after he pleased God by faith, but now his blood cries out not for condemnation, but for forgiveness. He's the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to go to a place unknown. He's the true and better Isaac. He carried wood up a hill to the place where he would be slaughtered. He trusted his father and submitted to his knife without a word. He was born of a miracle and is the real son of laughter. He's the true and better Jacob. He wrestled with God took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive wounds from God to awaken us to our dependence upon him. And we, like Jacob, receive a new name. He's the true and better Joseph at the right hand of the king, forgiving those who betrayed and sold him, using his new power now to save us. He's the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between us and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. He's the real man on the mountain. He's the true and better scapegoat of Leviticus. He was killed after our sins were laid on his head, and he was killed outside the camp. He's the true and better rock of Moses, who is struck with the rod of God's justice and now gives us water in the desert. He's the true and better Joshua, the general of the Lord's army. And if you remember, actually, Joshua meets the true general of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 6, and many people think that's an Old Testament uh, appearance of Christ himself. He's the true and better Job, the only true innocent sufferer who then intercedes for his friends. He's the true and better Samson, who accomplishes more by dying than he even did while living. He's the true and better David. His victory over the giant becomes the victory of his people, even though they themselves never lifted a stone to accomplish it. He's the true and better teacher of Ecclesiastes. He leads us through despair to help us to find God. He's the true and better Daniel. He trusted in God's care rather than the food of the world. He refused to stop glorifying God even though it cost him his life. But he ultimately was not saved, but was given over to death. He's the true and better Jonah. He spent three days in the belly of the earth in order that a bunch of Gentiles like us might be saved. He's the true and better Israel. 
He suffered hunger and temptation for 40 days in the wilderness, just as they did 40 years. He was homeless and wandered on the earth, just as Israel was homeless in the exile to Babylon. He is the remnant of one, the only one who was truly faithful to the covenant. He's the ultimate prophet, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate king of God's people, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. The entire thing. You see him everywhere, and it causes us to worship. What are we doing as Christians but seeking the glory of Jesus, seeking to see it and behold it. And you can see it as you read your Old Testament. So go find it. Go find it, brothers and sisters. And so this morning, what will you do with God's gift? What will you do with God's gift of the Old Testament? What will you do with God's gift of Jesus Christ? Here in just a moment, we're going to spend a few minutes, as we often do, after each sermon each week, we're going to spend a few minutes in silent prayer. This is a time for you to pray to God and for you to respond to what God has laid on your heart. Perhaps some of us need to ask God to help us to better seek Him through His Word. Perhaps some of us need to reckon with our overconfidence. Whatever it is, however God is laying His Word on your heart by the Holy Spirit. This is a time for you to respond directly to Him. This is why we give this time so that everyone can respond individually to God through prayer. So we'll ask that you pray for a few moments with us silently. And then after a time of private response here, we'll come back and we'll have a time of public response.